Welcome to the Peace Podcast. I'm John Deere, and today I'd like to reflect with you on the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, which I think are kind of a blueprint of Christian nonviolence. A few months from now, I'll also reflect on the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is really part one of what I want to share, and a lot of it is from my recent book, The Beatitudes of Peace. So I've been interested in the Beatitudes for a long time, and I got started when I was hitchhiking through Israel in 1982 and camping out at the Sea of Galilee. Israel was bombing Lebanon that summer, and I had just visited the chapel of the Beatitudes on the north shore of the sea and was deeply moved by them when suddenly I saw these Israeli jets fly down over the Sea of Galilee and drop bombs in nearby Lebanon. This is at the place where Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount. And I decided there and then that day to try to spend my life um, teaching and practicing these great teachings on peace and nonviolence. Then years later, I discovered that Gandhi read from the Sermon on the Mount every day for over 40 years. I'm talking about Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He thought these were the greatest teachings on nonviolence in the history of the world. And he wanted to be a person of nonviolence, so he concluded that he had to read from this text every single day as a kind of how to become a nonviolent person handbook. So that's what I'd like to invite you to do, to sit with these Beatitudes, to reflect on how you are living them, where they touch you and challenge you, and how you can live your life more and more according to these teachings. Then about 10 years ago, I discovered a French scripture scholar who translated the Beatitudes into the ancient Aramaic, the lost language which Jesus spoke. And he says, very interestingly, a more accurate translation instead of blessed are would be arise, get up, get moving, start walking, and walk forth. I find this very exciting. It's not passive at all. The Aramaic includes resurrection, walking, and discipleship. And this translation sounds to me like the Jesus who's empowering this ragtag group of followers who are really oppressed Galilean peasants struggling to survive under the evil Roman Empire. And Jesus is telling them, get up, go out as nonviolent lambs into the midst of wolves to proclaim the coming of God's reign of nonviolence. Get up, get moving, get walking, and join the campaign of nonviolence. So as we go through the Beatitudes, I invite you to hear Jesus saying to you, arise, get up, get moving, and walk forth in my footsteps on my campaign of active creative nonviolence. It's just lovely. So let's begin by reading the Beatitudes. This is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. When he saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of justice, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you 
and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let's walk through these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he begins, the reign of God is theirs. So if, as Gandhi would say, if the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' basic campaign platform speech on nonviolence, that's the way I like to think of it, notice that Jesus starts right off talking about the poor and the economics of God's reign and being poor in spirit. I think that's very interesting. It's not how I would begin. Luke's version is even stronger. Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. Jesus focuses not on the rich and the powerful, but on the poor and the powerless, and says they have the one thing the rich do not have, the reign of God. So it's a very mysterious teaching, but I think Jesus is calling us to let go of power, prestige, privilege, possessions, and money, to share our hearts and lives with those in need, with the poor, and to keep letting go, to practice downward mobility as the first step in the journey of Christian nonviolence. And he's saying the poor already have the reign of God. And all of us are called to stand with the poor as he did and to become one with the poor. That's how the life of nonviolence starts. He's calling us out of the culture of violence, out of empire, into God's reign of peace and love. He wants us to be poor in spirit, which means, among other things, not to live like little emperors, running our own little empires, bullying others, controlling and dominating others. That's the opposite of being poor in spirit. We give up control, domination, violence, and power, and surrender to God, let go into emptiness and empathy and kindness and compassion as best we can, and share our hearts and lives with others, especially those in need. So if we're rich and powerful with lots of possessions, you don't need God or God's reign. You've got your own little reign, and the American empire. But if we're poor and poor in spirit, we need God and we want God's reign. So I think that's the invitation to let go of power, possessions, privilege, control, and domination, to surrender to God and enter into God's reign more and more, to simplify our lives and follow Jesus on the path where to the cross and resurrection, to our own peaceful, fruitful deaths, when we finally become totally poor in spirit and surrender our lives to God like Jesus on the cross. Again, I think this is the first step of the discipleship journey of nonviolence. It begins in the, it means prayer, compassion, and love. So then we have the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. In our country, in the U.S., we're not encouraged to grieve or mourn. But most people, billions of people, spend their lives every day mourning because their loved ones have been killed by war, starvation, or injustice. Here, instead of grieving, we get angry or depressed or afraid or despairing. But Jesus is very clear in the Sermon on the Mount about the emotional life of nonviolence. He recommends that we do not cultivate anger or fear, but that we practice grief and cultivate joy. It's very interesting. Nonviolence begins by recognizing that we are one with all 7.2 billion people on the planet and all the creatures and Mother Earth. And the more we contemplate our oneness with humanity and creation, uh, 
the more we're grieving because we realize so many people, our sisters and brothers, are suffering and dying unjustly and all the creatures in creation. That's why Daniel Berrigan said to me long ago, peacemaking begins with grief. We are grieving over what's happening to our sisters and brothers and to all the creatures and Mother Earth. So I think we need to make grief and mourning a regular part now of our contemplative practice that we should almost take time every week formally to sit and grieve and mourn for suffering humanity and creation. The interesting thing is if you grieve, then our hard hearts break a little bit more and we can become more empathetic and compassionate. And isn't that the goal of all this? Universal compassion, universal love, universal nonviolence. Compassion always leads to action for humanity, which is what Jesus wants. And notice, too, that Jesus says, if we mourn, we will be comforted. I guess the opposite is true, too. If we don't mourn, we will not be comforted. Third, blessed are the meek, Jesus teaches. They will inherit the earth. So years ago, in my book about Thomas Merton, I discovered Merton said that the word meekness is actually the biblical word for active, creative nonviolence. I never knew that. Well, that means Jesus is not blessing those who are passive or doing nothing. I'm meek and humble, so I do nothing. That's not it at all. He's talking about Martin Luther King and Dorothy Day. Those brave, courageous people who practice active, creative public nonviolence. But what's so strange to me is that Jesus connects the life of active, creative nonviolence with oneness with creation. I never thought about that before. Jesus says, if we are actively or nonviolent, we will be one with creation. Well, then I realized, well, the flip side must be true too. If we reject nonviolence and we're violent and support the culture of violence, then we will not be one with creation. And this is exactly what has happened to humanity and the church. For the first three centuries, Christianity was an illegal religion, no Christian joined the military or the empire because every Christian was totally nonviolent. Well, then in the third century, the Emperor Constantine declared he had converted to Christianity. Christianity was now legal and said, okay, all you Christians can now be Roman soldiers. And he turned to the pagan Cicero and came up with the beginnings of the just war theory. And in effect, he threw out the Sermon on the Mount and nonviolence. And so for 1700 years, all Christians, the church, has basically rejected the nonviolence of Jesus and supported warfare and justified violence. And since we've rejected Jesus' way of nonviolence, we have become, according to the logic of Jesus, disconnected with creation. And so we started to destroy Mother Earth. We were not one with creation. And here we are now into total catastrophic climate change. And I've just written a whole book about this called They Will Inherit the Earth, just on this beatitude alone. So what happened? Well, in a nutshell, as you all know, over the last century, we dug up fossil fuels, so filled the atmosphere with carbon, which raised the Earth's temperature dramatically, which caused the ice caps to melt, raised the sea level dramatically, leading not just to the hottest year on records, but terrifying storms and hurricanes and droughts and blizzards and tornadoes and fires and these dramatic rainfalls. But over the next century, it's gonna get much worse. Hundreds of millions 
the people will have to flee the coastal areas. There are going to be many more wars over land and water. And therefore, the only sane way forward is not to remove fossil fuels from the ground, which means the whole world has to turn to solar and wind power, renewable energy, and end war and nuclear weapons, which pollute and destroy the environment. And the only way that's going to happen is through a global bottom-up people power grassroots movement of active nonviolence, the likes of which the world has never seen to end war and environmental destruction, beginning the healing of Mother Earth. That's amazing. I see all of that in the third beatitude. The life of nonviolence leads to oneness with creation. Well, once you start working for oneness with creation, you have to enter the struggle for justice, and that's the next beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, Jesus says. They will be satisfied. This is just the fourth sentence in the Sermon on the Mount. It's amazing. So be passionate for justice, he says. Work for social, racial, and economic justice. Hunger and thirst for justice, the most important thing you can do. Do your part to help end global, systemic, structured, institutionalized injustice. Try to help bring justice to the poor, the oppressed, the creatures, and Mother Earth. But what's helped me throughout my life is that when Jesus says we will be satisfied, I think he means we'll find meaning and purpose in our lives. And I think that's very helpful. That the most meaningful thing we can do with our lives is to be part of the global grassroots nonviolent movements for justice and creation. That's really helpful teaching. So I think we all have to be part of our local and national groups and pitch in and periodically take to the streets. I hope everyone will get involved with my group, Pache Bene. But I invite you through this beatitude to see that this struggle for justice is part of the spiritual life, that the contemplative life, our daily prayer, the sacraments, all of these are helps on our journey of nonviolence to strengthen us to stand up publicly for justice and peace. It's very powerful if you look at it that way. Well, nonviolence and justice in the mind of the nonviolent Jesus leads to mercy. So the next beatitude, blessed are the merciful, they shall be shown mercy. So while we struggle for justice on the one hand, Jesus says we offer mercy with the other, especially toward those who have hurt us. And we offer forgiveness toward those whom the culture says do not deserve mercy. Mercy is at the heart of God, Thomas Merton said. Be as compassionate, as merciful as God, Jesus will later say in the Sermon on the Mount. I looked up mercy in, the, in Webster's Dictionary, and here's how they define it. Refraining from harming or punishing offenders, enemies, or persons in one's power. Wow. Kindness in excess of what may be expected or demanded by fairness. Wow. Forbearance and compassion. Imprisonment rather than the death penalty imposed on those found guilty of capital crimes. Wow, it's right there in the dictionary. A disposition to forgive, pity, or be kind. The power to forgive and be kind, clemency. So mercy means feeling empathy and pity for others, showing compassion to them, and practicing unconditional love for those who are unloved, poor, or marginalized. In other words, Mercy, I think mercy means letting people off the hook. It means granting clemency to those who are deemed unforgivable, being kind and forgiving to those whom we're taught don't deserve it, 
means we never retaliate. We don't seek revenge. We forgive everyone who ever hurt us. We offer compassion, and we always give others a second chance. I think because God does that to us. So we try to show mercy and compassion as Jesus showed it to those who don't get it in society, the poor, the sick, the weak, the elderly, the marginalized. And we pursue the politics of mercy, and we try to institutionalize mercy. So that means, of course, we work to abolish the death penalty in war. We're trying to establish restorative justice and reconciliation. We're working for a new culture, as Pope Francis says, of justice and mercy and nonviolence. And interestingly, Jesus concludes by saying, as we show mercy, we sow seeds of mercy, and one day the mercy will wash back over us. That's very touching and beautiful. Next, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Sometimes this beatitude is translated, blessed are the clean of heart. Well, that fits in with Jesus' total public stand against the Jewish cleanliness laws. From day one, Jesus repudiated and violated the Jewish cleanliness laws. By speaking out against them and breaking them over and over again, he was committing a crime, civil disobedience. He could have been killed just for that. He challenged every aspect of hypocritical institutional religion, which set up rituals, rules, and traditions from which the religious authorities profited. His argument was, instead of cleaning your dishes and your hands, clean your hearts, which belong to God, and give your hearts to God. Interestingly, if you heard my last uh, podcast, in all my studies of Gandhi, over 40 years, I found letters by Gandhi saying, This is the hardest beatitude and line in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Well, I never thought of that, but that's how serious Gandhi was taking him. He couldn't figure out how to be pure of heart. (laughs) But he tried, and he wrestled with it very seriously, and we can too. So I figured it out. No, I, I think when Jesus calls us to purity of heart, he's calling us to the inner journey of nonviolence the ongoing daily journey of disarming the heart toward a nonviolent heart that keeps widening toward greater compassion and universal love. So purity of heart is, a, is the process, if you will, of inner disarmament, the ongoing disarmament of our hearts. Jesus is inviting us to look within and explore and disarm the violence within us to break open our hard, violent hearts, to develop soft, nonviolent hearts of love and compassion, to become, if you will, tender-hearted, especially as people involved in the struggle for justice. This beatitude says that while we work for justice and peace, we're also doing the inner work of discernment, the inner work of nonviolence and peace. So with this beatitude and the next one, we're called to be both on an inner journey of inner peace and nonviolence, as well as a public journey of public peace and nonviolence. I think Jesus' act of nonviolence flowed from the nonviolence of his heart. Church has always said he had a pure heart, a clean heart, a nonviolent heart, and later, the beautiful phrase, a sacred heart. And at one point in Matthew's gospel, he confides that he's gentle and humble of heart. That's my defining characteristic, he said of himself. He didn't have a drop of violence in him the poor guy. He was so gentle and humble of heart. And he said, 
All violence comes from within. So he wants us to have pure, clean, nonviolent, sacred hearts so that we can then go forth and practice meticulous interpersonal nonviolence and be part of his sacred public campaign of nonviolence. So that's one way to understand our daily meditation. And I think that's where Gandhi went with this. Every day we take time to sit with God and let God disarm our hearts and let go of our inner violence, our hatred and anger and bitterness and resentment hurts. Give our hearts to God and let God, God fashion our violent hearts into new nonviolence hearts so that we can become God's nonviolent people and surrender ourselves more and more to God. But this is what gets me every time I read this. Notice how Jesus connects our hearts with our eyes. That our inner life of nonviolence, if you will, leads to a new vision of nonviolence. I mean, who could, no one ever said that before in history. Jesus says that as you cultivate inner nonviolence of heart, and allow God to purify and disarm your heart, you will begin to see God everywhere. What? That inner nonviolence helps us to see with the eyes of peace and love, to recognize every human being as a sister and brother, if you will, to see Christ in every human being, especially the poor. And this inner work, in other words, gives us a big vision. I love that. We see God everywhere now, in the faces of children, in our friends, in the creatures, in the beauty of creation. Uh, more than that, in the poor, in the marginalized, in the oppressed, and in our enemies. If we dare plumb the depths of inner peace and nonviolence, Jesus says, buckle your seatbelts, you will receive the beatific vision, not when we die, but right now today. Now, all of that leads to the great climactic beatitude, the call to become peacemakers. This is the whole point of the beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the sons and daughters of the God of peace. I think this is the core of the gospel, the heart of Christianity, the great mission of discipleship. We're all called to be peacemakers. But for, I've reflected on this for 40 years, and I think this is a great way to understand life. How have you been a peacemaker? And how are you going to consciously live the rest of your life from today to the day you die as a peacemaker? What does it mean for you to be a peacemaker? And how can you become a better peacemaker? Well, if we're called to be peacemakers, I think first and foremost, that means we're not called to be war makers. To just state the obvious, because nobody else is. We cannot support war or bless war, or participate in war, or pay for war, or promote war, or send our kids off to war. Peacemakers work to end war and create peace. So with this statement, every Christian is banned from warfare around the planet from now on in history and called to work for peace. Well, using the Gandhian hermeneutic, that means peacemakers practice nonviolence to ourselves, to all others, to all creatures and all creation. And we're all working publicly in the global grassroots movements for a new culture of peace and nonviolence. We're peaceful toward ourselves. We try to make peace with ourselves and steadfastly cultivate interior peace, come what may. Pope Francis, this week as I'm recording this, said we're supposed to 
have the interior freedom of peace which Jesus practiced. Wow. Also, we are peaceful, peaceful toward all those around us and all the creatures and all creation. And we're doing our part actively, publicly to make a more peaceful world. We make peace by loving and reconciling with everyone, teaching peace and nonviolence, and supporting the grassroots movements of peace and nonviolence. We promote nonviolent alternatives and nonviolent conflict resolution and peace education, and we work with others to abolish war and nuclear weapons so that everyone can live in peace, and that means spending those trillions of dollars of war instead to feed and house and heal every human being on the planet, and then educate every person on the planet in the methodology of nonviolent conflict resolution and actually institutionalize nonviolent conflict resolution on the planet. The UN says all of this is doable. But for me, what's so shocking is that Jesus announces God is a peacemaker. It's incredible. No one had ever said this before. With this beatitude, Jesus describes the nature and the mystery of divinity as nonviolent and peaceful. And with that, he throws out thousands of years of belief in a violent God right there. He does away with all spiritual justification for warfare, for the just war theory, or that God might bless our troops or bless our wars. Instead, he opens our imagination to see that God is peaceful, totally nonviolent, and that God's reign is a new world of peace and nonviolence. And then, even more amazingly, he tells us who we are. It's, it's, it's amazing. From now on, he says, you are the beloved sons and daughters of this God of peace. So for me, this is the key to a spirituality of peace and nonviolence. Here it goes. God is a God of peace. We are called to make peace because we are the sons and daughters of the God of peace. This is our fundamental core identity. We are the beloved daughters and sons of the God of peace, so naturally we go forth into the culture of war and make peace. That's what we do, because we're just chips off the old block. Well, if you stand up publicly for peace in a world of systemic injustice and peaceful war, what's gonna happen? you're going to get in a lot of trouble. People don't want to hear it. And that's why the next beatitude, the last beatitude, is about getting in trouble for working for peace and justice. This is very helpful if you, if you want to really follow Jesus. He says, blessed are those persecuted for the sake of justice. Theirs is the reign of God. And that's why I love what Dorothy Day said. She came along and said, <laughs> The measure of our discipleship to the nonviolent Jesus is how much trouble you're in with the state or the empire. You know, a lot of people, as I quoted that around the country, have laughed, but actually it's very, very helpful and true. If you're not in trouble with the state, well, you're not living the Beatitudes or... Your silence and complicity means you support the culture of violence and war. Um, in a world of total violence, war, and injustice, if you stand up for justice and disarmament and peace and try to change things, people are not going to thank you or honor you. They get mad at you and tell you to be quiet. Don't rock the boat. 
And that's when you get to practice nonviolence and see how nonviolent you are. Only when you're up against it. I could talk a lot about this. I'm, I'm thinking of Cesar Chavez as I'm saying these words. He told me late one night before he died, you know, nonviolence, John, only happens on the front lines when you're up against it. That's a hard teaching. Thank you, Cesar. If we keep at this public work for peace and justice, we're going to get in trouble. And we're going to be persecuted and harassed, maybe even arrested in jail, as I've discovered, or maybe worse. But Jesus says, this is all to be expected. An act of nonviolence is the greatest of blessings. Why? Because the reign of God is yours now. I think Jesus expects us to rock the boat to disrupt the culture of violence and war as he did. He wants us to be nonviolent troublemakers, people who, risk, who work for an end to injustice, poverty, and war, like Dorothy Day and Dr. King, people who take risks for justice and peace. And when we get in trouble, which we know is going to come, we maintain our nonviolence. We forgive those who hurt us and pray for our persecutors and trust in God even more and we keep speaking truth to power. This is how the positive social change of the gospel occurs. Through our participation in the bottom-up, people-power, global grassroots movements of active nonviolence for justice, discernment, and creation. Through our nonviolent, suffering, redemptive love for the truth of justice and peace. Or to put it another way, through our sharing in the paschal mystery of Jesus in the cross and resurrection. But then in the end, Jesus goes further and adds like an addendum to the Beatitudes. He says, And blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you are in trouble and put down because you speak out for justice and peace, rejoice and be glad, he says. Now you get to share in the blessings of the prophets. That's what he wants. He wants us to be prophets of peace and justice. Now you get to be Dorothy Day and poor Martin Luther King and Gandhi. In Luke's version, it's actually there. Go and read it. He says, leap for joy. So I hope all those of you who are listening are rejoicing and leaping and dancing because you're in so much trouble for working for justice and peace. So in conclusion, friends, as you reflect on the Beatitudes, I invite you to hear them all over again with this wonderful Aramaic translation. Here goes. Arise, get up, get moving, start walking, walk forth, all you poor in spirit. You who mourn, you who are meek and nonviolent, you who hunger and thirst for justice, arise, get up, get moving, start walking and walk, walk forth. All you merciful, you pure in heart, you peacemakers, you persecuted for justice, rejoice and be glad. So dear friends, may we all become beatitude people, people who rise and walk forth, people of gospel nonviolence and justice and peace and mercy. May we all be who we were created to be, who we already are, God's beloved sons and daughters, holy peacemakers. Thank you very much. God bless you and peace be with you. Mm -hmm.